Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. That's the sound of a wax cylinder recording from back in 1929 of an indigenous woman from the Carmel Valley named Isabel Meadows. She's telling a creation myth. She spoke Rumsian Ohlone, Esalen, and Spanish. And she helped record the stories of California Indians from the Big Sur, Monterey, and Central Coast areas for a Smithsonian ethnographer whose name was J.P. Harrington. He tried to capture some of the last speakers of indigenous languages here in California. Isabel Meadows made sure Harrington captured stories of resistance and of hope for future generations. One of her relatives has continued on that tradition of recording her tribe's stories. Deborah Miranda is a poet, a professor, and an enrolled member of the Ohlone Costanoan Esalen Nation of the greater Monterey Bay area. She also has Santa Cruz and Chumash ancestry. She researched those wax cylinder recordings along with other primary source materials about the history of California Indians for her award-winning book, which is called Bad Indians, a Tribal Memoir. It features drawings and poems, newspaper clippings, photos, and prose. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on the California Report magazine, we're going to talk with Deborah about her book, which has just been released with new material for an updated 10th anniversary edition. And just a warning, this conversation includes discussions of violence, including homophobic and sexual violence. So please take care while listening. Deborah, part of the spine running through this book is memoir. It's your own story. And the opening page is this really gorgeous black and white photo. It's of your parents and they're dancing together. And it really starts with their story. One of the stories California tells is this. In 1959, my mother met my father. Magil Eleanor Yeoman encountered Alfred Edward Miranda. She was 25 years old. He was 33. She had been born and raised in Beverly Hills. He had been born on the Tuolumne Rancheria, a California Indian reservation, and raised on the mean streets of Santa Monica. Her father, Yeoman, was of English descent. Her mother, Ganot or Jeannot, of French ancestry and possibly Jewish. Al was Chumash and Esalen, his mother from the Santa Barbara Santa Inez Mission Indians, his father from the Carmel Mission Indians, European and indigenous, nominal Christian and lapsed Catholic, once good girl and twice bad boy. 
heaven on earth, and hell, too. Your story of your childhood, of growing up with your parents and your grandparents, and the story of your ancestors is something that you tell using primary sources like photos and letters and recordings. In fact, you inherited this garbage bag full of old cassettes from your grandfather. And some of those tapes over time have gotten really warped, but you can still hear his voice. Tell us about who he was. Well, his name was Thomas Anthony Miranda. He was born in 1903, which is a really significant time for California Indians, pre-invasion, as we say. Uh, There were uh, an estimated one million Indians in the area we currently call California. And by the time he was born in 1903, there were anywhere from 10 to 15,000 left. The Indians of my grandfather's time had learned through very difficult examples not to announce that they were Indian to the world. It was very dangerous. They knew stories within my family of of white men going door to door, knocking on the door, opening it up, and saying, are there Indians here? And then killing them, shooting them for bounty from the U.S. Congress. So to be an Indian was to court danger and death. Even though he went dancing in the hills and made his own regalia and knew a couple of different indigenous languages— He didn't pass any of that on to any of his sons, and so they couldn't pass it on to their children, and my father couldn't pass it on to me. So that's um, something that I ache about when I think about Tom, is how much of his identity he had to keep secret. He got to make a medicine. Every kind of weed, root, or whatever he got, he cooked it some way and put it together. He was known as Dr. Tarango, I remember So in this story, Grandfather Tom talks about two of his grandfathers. Um, One of them was kind of a step-grandfather named Louis Tarango. And that's who he's talking about when he talks about someone doing medicine. In California, medicine men were called doctors. This was all happening sort of under the radar of white culture, but something that California Indians would all have known about. Transcribing those tapes, listening to them and then transcribing them was, as you can tell, really difficult. But I think one of the things that that did for me was give me a a sense of who Tom was as he's giving us these memories. Sometimes you can hear his voice become very tender um, or very angry or very wistful. And as happened with most of the archives I was working with, I began to feel very close to those people. And it felt very much like the time between us was melting away and that they were present for me. And that's what I wanted to do with the book, was make these ancestors present for other people. This is another one of those wax cylinder recordings you found, this one from back in 1902. And it's housed in a collection of American Indian sound recordings at UC Berkeley. This is known as the Esalen Deer Song, and it was sung by Viviana Soto Mukai. Tell me about what it was like for you to first hear that. 
it felt a little bit like a dream that someone's voice from so long ago could reach us. It felt a little miraculous. I also felt a little conflicted about the circumstances under which it was recorded because I know that salvage ethnology was pretty brutal. Indian people were not treated well oftentimes. But overwhelmingly what I felt was um, gratitude that we could hear Viviana's voice, uh, the voice of someone born in 1823, could reach my ears and the ears of my children. It was overwhelming and still is. Just hearing that right now, I I just kind of lump in my throat. Yeah, and that song inspired you to write a piece in this book. It's about a girl who, like you, had a white mom and an Indian dad and who really felt the absence of her parents. Yes, I titled it Mestiza Nation um, because this is living in the borderlands all the time from the time you're a very small child. In my own life, it's the story of being taken to my grandparents when my father was incarcerated and my mother disappeared for a long time. And they lived in the Tehachapi Mountains, which was, if this was just a, a fairy tale place in my mind. And gorgeous. The mountains were really beautiful. And I remember very clearly the morning they took me to go stay with my grandparents. We had to leave before dawn, and I went out on the porch and stood under these incredible stars. And it was a very liminal moment. You know, I was going forward into a life that would be very difficult. And so I wondered what would happen if I could have been taken instead into a place where Everyone was like me. Everyone um, embraced their liminality and that that, in fact, was a kind of homeland. So I imagined this um, kind of grandmother figure coming out of a mountain and calling me with the deer song. I just remember standing there on that porch knowing that I was in this in-between moment. You know, what's so beautiful about what you've done with this book, Deborah, is that you take moments like that from your personal narrative, your personal history, and you really weave them together with this broader history and broader critique of the narrative that so many of us learn as Californians in public schools about the missions and California Indians. Alta California is truly a land blessed by the saints. Our flock have increased on the abundant grass of the fertile valleys. We are gradually winning the confidence of the natives, and day after day, new converts enter the mission. This is a clip from a 1965 educational film called Mission Life. We bless them as men with souls and hope to give them a better life by teaching them the useful arts of civilization. We have labored many months training these neophytes to carry out the many tasks of the mission. They have become well, that is pretty typical BS from the propaganda that mission mythology is built on. The idea that the Indians welcomed the Padres, that the Spanish were civilizing Indians, when in reality Indians had all the markers of civilization by anybody's Um, measurement. We had language, we had arts, we had spirituality and religion, 
we had governance, we had rituals, all the things that people measure a civilization by. So really the trick was how to turn indigenous people who lived in a sovereign state into laborers for the Spanish government. And of course, part of what kept people working was violence. Yes, punishment. Yeah. I mean, for me, some of the most powerful material in here is where you hear the correspondence of, you know, how the Spanish missionaries talked about the native Californians and then these charts and images of all the tools and whips and Mm. other implements they used to flog people to make them do this kind of work. I mean, at its heart, this was really a kind of slavery. Yes, it was. It was a kind of slavery in addition to a kind of brainwashing Um, ways to convince people that there were no alternatives. And, of course, one of the outcomes of that violence and of the diseases that the Spanish brought was that people died, was genocide. One of the most moving vignettes in this book for me is where you write about visiting Mission Soledad and actually finding bones in the dirt. It's Saturday morning and we have never walked so mindfully. We find bone fragments on paths, in the parking lot, at the edges of groomed green fields. Here is a finger joint, here a tooth, here a shattered section of femur, here something unidentifiable except for the lacy pattern that means human being. Our children run to us with handfuls of ancestors they keep calling fossils, because youth and privilege don't let the truth sink in yet. It's too big, too much to know. Our relatives, scattered on the earth, where mass is said once a month and for $300, you can baptize a baby in the old chapel beneath turquoise, pink, green, and blue designs painted by our relatives. Chevy trucks and Mercedes-Benzes drive across the dirt parking lot created by bulldozing the graveyard of Soledad's Indians. Bits of bone rise up from the dirt, catch in the steel-belted tire treads of tourists, carry our ancestors out to Highway 101, scatter them to the wind. It's just so piercing to me that you can walk on this land and actually see the bones of your ancestors sticking up from the dirt. Mm. It's very visceral. It's not an experience that you forget. We're talking with Deborah Miranda, the author of Bad Indians, which has recently been reissued as a special 10th anniversary edition. Deborah, here in California, the missions are still very much a part of the fourth grade curriculum. And one of the assignments that so many of us who grew up here in California had to do was to actually build a model of a mission. You decided to turn that assignment on its head by imagining what it would be like if parents had to help students make other kinds of models. Dear fourth grade students and parents, here is a packet that will assist you in completing our California Missions project this year. 
Dear fourth grade students and parents, here's a packet that will assist you in completing our Mississippi Plantation Project this year. Each student... Dear fourth grade students and parents, here is a packet that will assist you in completing our German concentration camps project this year. Each student will research one of 21 German concentration camps. They do teach children about the enslavement of Africans, and they do teach children about concentration camps. What if those lessons were presented the same way that California indigenous peoples are presented in this project? As something in the past, as something of a curiosity, as something that a fourth grader could easily research and write a report on, and then build a model of a southern plantation with enslaved people in the fields being whipped, or a concentration camp model with enslaved Jews being whipped or pushed into ovens. I mean, I, I felt that nobody was listening to indigenous Californians talk about how, not just inappropriate, but how in a way sacrilegious these mission projects are. Well, new to this edition, you actually have a letter from a fourth grader Mm -hmm. who wrote to you, uh, you know, asking, hey, (laughs) can I actually ask a a real live California Indian about the mission (laughs) experience? Dear Miss Ramirez, I'm a fourth grader doing my report on Mission Nuestra Señora Dolorosísima de la Soledad. I wanted to know if the Native Americans liked the mission, which priests were their favorites, stuff like that. Thanks a ton. Sincerely, Sonora. Dear Sonora, I can tell you right away that writing to California tribes on your own is a smart move. Many people don't think to ask us, or they think we are all dead. Still here. You wanted to know the Ohlone Esling Kustanoan opinion of the missions. That's a tough question. Some Indian people will tell you that the missions were great and brought us Catholicism and agriculture. Others will tell you that anything that kills about 80% of your people can't be good. And of course, part of the impact of your book and the advocacy by California Indian tribes is that that standard you know, of making these mission projects in the fourth grade actually got changed in the California public school curriculum about five years ago. Here's its lesson over for a long-running educational project in California. As CBS 2's Joe Kwan tells us, the fourth grade requirement to build models of missions is on its way to the history books. The California curriculum framework adopted last year says building missions from sugar cubes or popsicle sticks does not help students understand the period. The legislature basically said you don't have to teach the fourth grade mission unit this way. It didn't say don't teach the fourth grade mission this way. So there are plenty of teachers still teaching the traditional mission unit. Mackenzie says this isn't just a history lesson. It also teaches kids about architecture. This student chose to use old coffee stirs for the roof. It's also an art lesson. There are plenty of ways that you can teach an art lesson without hiding the fact that this was actually a really, really deadly uh, effect for the California Indians. The California Indian argument is, please teach 
accurate history through whatever lesson you're using. I mean, I think what is so hard maybe for teachers to wrap their heads around is that teaching the truth means teaching about violence. Right. There is this foundation that the country is built on, the history of how the U.S. government and um you know, culture in general has treated California Indians is still so shoddy. There hasn't been enough done to rectify the situation. And so you can't really teach the truth and still feel good about yourself or about your country. Well, one of the disturbing truths that you illuminate in this book is the history of violence against women and sexual violence and how that links to your own story. You've got this image in the book. It's of a handwritten note a story about a little girl who went into the Carmel Church at Lent and was raped by the priest there, a story that was passed down for more than a century. Vicenta Gutierrez, sister of the blonde Gutierrez, when she was a girl, went to confession one evening during Lent, and Father Real wanted her to grab her over there in the church. And next day there was no trace of the Padre there, and he was never seen again. He probably fled on horseback in the night. Some said he fled to Spain. He was a Spaniard. He grabbed the girl and screwed her. The girl went running to her house, saying the Padre had grabbed her. It felt very much like a kick in the gut, because it was so much like my own story as a child. And as an adult, I've learned, you know, this is not something that was rare. So Indigenous women, for many reasons, are really vulnerable to sexual violence and usually not by other Indigenous peoples. So this was a story that I knew from the inside. So this is a really important story. We still suffer from tremendous Uh, sexual violence against Indigenous women in the 21st century. And Vicenta is this amazingly strong uh, woman, young woman, who is able to describe what happened to her as wrong and to ask for justice. And I think that there are still a lot of Indigenous women that need to hear that message. Deborah. One of the perspectives that you bring to this book that we rarely hear about is the perspective of LGBTQ2 spirit folks and some of the historical evidence of how they were treated in the missions. I found many notations in the baptismal records of third gender people who were brought in and basically regendered and told that they were not women, they were men, they needed to dress like men and take up men's roles. And so the violence of that regendering really kind of broke my heart. And they were noticed by the Spaniards up and down the entire California coast in basically every village that they went to. And of course, for the Spaniards, this was, you know, the ultimate sin. This was homosexuality, and it needed to be eradicated. But for California Indians, this was a very sacred role. Oftentimes in many Chumash communities, um, they were called Aki, and they were very necessary to handle the dead. That was their job, to midwife the dead into um, the next existence. 
I really felt strongly that I wanted to give a place to the third gender people that was seen as valuable, um, loved, very beloved in their communities. We, midwifed the dead, carried each body tenderly from this world to the next without risking contamination, always in two worlds at once, poised between. We kept our balance on those slippery paths between life and death. Then the soldiers came, the priests came, christened us hoyas, jewels, laughing at how our tribes treated us, sodomites, nefandopacados, mujerados, as treasures. Treasures. They called us monsters. So what was it like for you, you know, as an LGBTQ author yourself, to recognize that lineage and how it's been erased? I felt a real sense of kinship. It made me think about what it was like to be, to know you were a third gender person in a time when that was basically illegal. And in a time when all of the people who could have taught you what that role was are gone. And I feel like we are very much people who are taking up the roles of continuing to build community in much the same way that the original third gender people were doing. About 25,000 people attended the Pope's historic canonization today of the Spanish priest... Deborah, one of the new updates in this 10th anniversary edition of the book talks about the activism that you and others were involved in to protest the canonization of the man who many consider to be the father of the Spanish missions in California, Junipero Serra. It's seen as controversial by some who say Sarah's missions enslaved Native Americans and spread diseases that killed much of the Native population. Others say it acknowledges Hispanic people's contributions to the church. The as a California Indian, I saw this canonization as just a continued repetition of the erasure of California Indian lives and voices, that our history in California was someone else's to manipulate. And I had a phrase I used at the time saying that California Indians were really just being used as canonization fodder. We were the people that, quote-unquote, made Sarah a saint, and yet we were not allowed to have a voice in protesting the canonization. So your book first came out 10 years ago. You've got a new edition out now. What do you think has changed in the last 10 years, or maybe what hasn't? Hmm. Yeah, change does come slowly. When I graduated from the university with a PhD in 2001, I was one of six Native American peoples who received a PhD in the humanities that year in the entire United States. Hmm. When I look at the Academy now, I can't even count how many California Indian scholars are emerging and are making differences in the lives of American students who don't know this information. So we have grown stronger. 
Um, we have learned how to work together. The arts and the cultures and the language revitalization are also flourishing. So, yeah, it's a new story right now. Deborah Miranda, her book Bad Indians, a Tribal Memoir, has just been re-released as an expanded 10th anniversary edition. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer-director. And Brendan Willard is our engineer. Our team also includes Amanda Font, Izzy Bloom, and Jessica Carissa. And special thanks this week to Neva Steiger. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.